You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Well, let's do it. Let's open up our Bibles to the Book of Acts, Chapter 15. And Father, bless your word to us this morning. I'm going to rely on your promise, Lord, that your strength is made perfect in weakness. And so, Lord, I'll supply the weakness and you supply the strength. And Lord, do your work here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come into Acts chapter 15, we remember where we left off last time in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas had just finished a missionary journey where they had gone across to the island of Cyprus and then north up into the main continent. They went to a city called Pisidian Antioch and another city called Iconium and then Lystra and Derbe. And all along the way, they founded churches that were mainly among Gentile populations. Now, I'm not saying exclusively Gentile. They began by speaking in the synagogues where they could. And so there were many Jewish people who believed, but there were also many non-Jewish or Gentile people who believed as well. And they left behind many churches in these different communities, and there was a very strong non-Jewish or Gentile element in each one of those churches. And you would just say, well, praise the Lord, that's great. All these people are coming to Christ. Who cares if they're Jews? Who cares if they're Gentiles? They're coming to Jesus. That's the important thing. And if you said that, well, you would be correct. But not everybody saw it that way. So after the the sort of high at the end of chapter 14, here comes kind of the the low or the, the challenge at the beginning of chapter 15. Should we read verse 1 together here? It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, that's pretty startling, isn't it? These men, and who were these guys, right? Certain men from Judea. We know that they were from the church there in Judea or Jerusalem. They were very traditionalistic Jews who had received Jesus. Make no mistake about it, friends. The certain men from Judea that are described in verse 1, they were Christians. They were Christians from a Jewish background. But they believed on Jesus as their Messiah. And they came up to the church in Antioch and they said, listen, you, Paul and Barnabas, you've been teaching it all wrong. You've been telling these Gentiles that they can come straight to Jesus. But that's not right. They have to go through Moses and then they can come to Jesus. That's what these certain men from Judea were saying. They had to submit to all Jewish rituals, including circumcision. I want you to know how passionate they were about this belief. Do you want to know how passionate they were? They were so passionate that they went all the way from Jerusalem to Antioch to bring this message. Do you know how far that is? That's some 300 miles. You can see Jerusalem marked way down in the south, Antioch way up the north. These people went all the way up to the church up in Antioch because they thought that Paul and Barnabas were so wrong by opening up the gates of Uh, a walk and a life in Jesus Christ, wide open to these Gentiles, they said, no, you have to go through Moses first. Now, I think it would be very difficult for some of these Jewish Christians to accept that Gentiles could be brought into the church as equal members without first coming through the law of Moses. And so, therefore, they thought that Paul and Barnabas were wrong. 
They said, Paul, all those churches you started on Cyprus and then in, Anto- uh, um, in Antioch and Pisidia and then Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. No, you, you told those people a false hope. You told those Gentiles that they were saved, but they never got circumcised. You told those Gentiles that they were right with God, but they're still eating pork. Paul, you're wrong. You've got to tell those people the right way to go, and that is to come under the law of Moses. And who were these guys? Again, what does the text say? Verse 1, they were certain men from Judea. By the way, I just want you to notice some other words there. Uh, At the end of verse 1, they said, if you don't do this, you cannot be saved. What this really brings our mind to is the fact that this was not in any way a side issue. This wasn't a peripheral issue. This had to do with salvation itself. How is somebody made right with God? Now, there are some people who think that you're made right with God just by being born. Everybody's right with God automatically. There's other people think you're made right with God just by not murdering anybody. Then you're right with God. You know, there's just a few really extreme people in this world who aren't worth God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, not to get into too great a depth, the Bible says we are born out of sorts with God. And we have to be brought into right relationship with him. And how does that happen? Well, Paul preached that that happens by simply putting your faith in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. That there's Jesus on the cross, dying, bleeding, loving for us. When all of our penalty for our sin was put upon him at the cross, that's what makes us right with God. These certain men from Judea said, no, that's not enough. It's a good start. But what you have to do is you have to add to it your coming under the law of Moses first in being circumcised and then in keeping the law afterwards. I can just imagine how Satan wanted to take advantage of this situation. How Satan wanted to promote the lie that you're made right with God by your works, by Jesus plus something. Lots of people think that way, right? You're made right with God by Jesus plus what you do. And I can see where that would be a real victory for Satan. But I'll tell you, there's another potential victory at Satan here in verse chapter 15, and that is the victory of dividing the body of Christ. Because, listen, even if the truth wins out at the end, Satan would love for it to be such a bloody, divisive, hateful battle that love is gone in the church. How will they ever be able to come to the truth and yet have hearts persuaded by love? I guess we should keep reading. Look at verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they did... Should I just stop right there for a moment? Can you read those words, please? No small dissension and dispute with them. Do you know what that means? That means that it was a great, big dissension and dispute, right? No small means great, big. They thought about this. Can you imagine how that would have gotten the hair on the back of the neck of Paul and Barnabas up? I I mean, in two ways. First of all, I think in some measure they took it personal. You saying right now that all the work we did in Cyprus and Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra and Derby, you're saying all that was no good. You're saying that we founded fraudulent churches. You're saying 
that the people we told were right with God, you are now right with God because of what Jesus Christ did in life. You're saying, no, we should have never told them that because they're still eating pork chops. This is the whole idea, right? So in one sense, I think they took it personal. But in another sense, they said, no, you can't preach this. You can't take away the hope that these people have. Here's a Gentile. God has moved in his life. He's repented from his sins. He's turned to the living God. And now you want to come and tell him, you're not right with God because you haven't submitted yourself to circumcision, because you haven't put yourself under the law of Moses. And so therefore, verse 2, I'll read it again. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by all the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. And you know what Luke wants us to know from this? Luke wants us to know that even though these certain men from Judea, remember them from verse 1? Even though they thought the way that they did, that that was actually a minority within the church. Luke wants us to know that most people were stoked to hear that the doors of salvation were wide open to the Gentiles and that they didn't have to go through Moses in order to be saved. Most people were absolutely thrilled to hear that repentance had come to the Gentiles. And these people who just once lived in pagan wickedness had turned their hearts to the living God and were filled with the Spirit and now living real lives of honor and glory to God. That made most people excited. It didn't excite these certain men from Judea, but it excited most everybody who heard it. And so all the distance from Antioch all the way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas stopped in as many churches as they could. They told them what God was doing among the Gentiles, and most of them received it with real excitement and with real gladness until they got to Jerusalem. And once they got to Jerusalem, right there in verse 5, here you're going to see what the main argument was. Verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, please notice, first of all, who these people are. We're not given names, are we? These are certain men from Judea. But we are told in something about their background. They were, before they surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, they were from the sect of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were well known for their high regard of the law of Moses and their desire to obey the law in the smallest details. Do you remember the story of some of Jesus' run-ins with the Pharisees in the Gospels, right? And when Jesus sort of had to call them out on some things, because the Pharisees were all into keeping the law in the smallest detail, but sometimes missing the great big picture of love and mercy and care for other people. Jesus said this. He said, listen, you Pharisees, you'll tithe to God from your herb gardens, but you'll neglect some of the bigger items of the law. Now, that's pretty heavy when you're tithing to God from your herb garden, right? you got a little patch of herbs that you're growing just to add a little spice to the kitchen. You're all into the gourmet thing. Great. Could you imagine somebody being so scrupulous in their giving that they count out, you know, nine basil leaves for me, one basil leaf for God? Man, that's, that's hardcore tithing, is it not? 
But that's the mentality the Pharisees had. Now, when these Pharisees came to Jesus, they really came to Jesus. I want to emphasize it to you again. These men were believers in Jesus. Look at verse 5 again. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, they believed in Jesus. The problem was, was that they hadn't fully left their prior beliefs. You see, it wasn't just that they had to believe in Jesus. They had to turn away from something they had believed before. I find sort of an interesting parallel between this and something we saw in the last chapter of the book of Acts. In the last chapter of the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, the Greeks there started worshiping them and they called them Zeus and Hermes. Do you remember that? A Barnabas was supposed to be Zeus and Paul was supposed to be Hermes. And they wanted to sacrifice animals to them and honor them as gods visiting the earth. Well, Paul and Barnabas had no, you know, sympathy with that at all. And they did everything they could to keep these people from worshiping them. And what they told them at that occasion, he said, listen, you guys, you need to turn from these empty idols and turn to the living God. Now, it's very easy to see how some pagan who wants to sacrifice a bull to Paul needs to turn from that. It's less obvious, but just as important to see how a Pharisee who's lived his whole life thinking that he makes himself right before God by what he does, he needs to turn from that to putting his trust in Jesus. I would say the message goes out to both groups, right? I mean, very conceivably today, right now, I could be speaking to somebody. You're here listening, and you know what? You are just, man, you are, you're a sinner. You are. And, I mean, you just know that. And other people in your life know it. I, I don't know. You could mark off in your own mind whatever category you sin you want to do. You're, you're a liar. You're a thief. You're promiscuous. You're a drunkard. Whatever it is, you know, you're just a sinner. Okay, and it's very easy to say, all right, you've got to turn from all that and put your trust in Jesus which, by the way, you do, and I hope that you do it today. It's less obvious to notice the religiously proud person who's putting their trust in who they are and what they do. Let me say something to you, Mr. or Mrs. religiously proud person who puts their trust in who they are and what they do to be right with God. You've got to turn. You've got to turn away from your self-righteous trust in yourself and what you do before God, whether it be your church attendance, your obedience, your giving, your sacrifice, whatever it is, all those good works that you do, I'm glad that you do them. But if you're trusting in those good works for your salvation, you need to turn from that right here, right now. So do you get the picture? Both sides have something to repent from. Well, that's what these people were forgetting. They were forgetting that Paul himself was a Pharisee. And Paul himself knew that he had to turn from this pharisaical trust in who he was and what he had done and put his trust in the living God. Paul came to know that Jesus didn't help him to do what a Pharisee does only better. Jesus came to bring him salvation. Jesus came to make him right with God. Friends, it's not like this. You make yourself right with God and Jesus will help you do it. No. A thousand times over, no. Jesus makes you right with God. And you put your trust in him and what he did for you on the cross. I love how Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He said this, 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Well, listen, that's what these certain men from Judea, these Christians from a pharisaical background, needed to understand because they came in saying, did you notice it there in verse 5? It is necessary to circumcise them. That brings them into the law and to command that they keep the law of Moses. That keeps them under the law. So you have to begin with circumcision and then you have to continue on with all the elements of the Mosaic law. And basically this was their teaching. They would say this, Gentiles are free to come to Jesus. They would say we want Gentiles to come to Jesus, but they have to come through the law of Moses in order to come to Jesus. They would say, Paul and Barnabas, you've done a wrong thing. You allowed people or you told them to come to Jesus without first going through Moses. So how's it going to work out? They're all gathered there in Jerusalem, ready to discuss it. Well, let the rumble begin. Verse six. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. By the way, I just love that one line. The apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. I mean, can't you just see him? Can't you see him gathered together there in a room? I, I, I imagine, this is just my imagination, I imagine they gathered together in that old upper room where Jesus met with them before, where they had met before, right? There they are, there, and they're in the upper room. And it's a bunch of them, right? There's the apostles there. They're all there. All the apostles there except for James, who had already been martyred, right? But there's another James there, James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's there, and he's sort of presiding over the whole council, as we're going to see. But there's all the surviving apostles, and there's elders, and there's just great men. I mean, wouldn't you love to get back in your time machine and rub shoulders with this illustrious group? There they are, these great men. They're there to decide this issue. They took it seriously. They said, listen, this is getting at the heart of the matter. We can't just agree to disagree on this matter. We've got to get down to the very heart of it. And so they all came together to consider the matter. And then if I like verse 6, I like verse 7 even better, at least how it starts. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them. Well, just stop right there. Much dispute? Do you know what that means? It means much dispute. And I don't mean to get all ethnic on you, but, you know, people from those Middle Eastern cultures, they know how to dispute, don't they? They know how to, like, energetically give it back and forth. And, can you, man, they were arguing it out. The, the certain men from Judea, right, the men from the Pharisaical background, and then Peter and then Paul and Barnabas, they were arguing about, well, what about this and what about this and what about this, Pastor, what about this? They were bam, 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 knocking up against each other time and time again. And the issue hadn't been decided yet. They were still, they were still dealing with it when, again, I'll start at the beginning of verse 7, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we, meaning we Jews, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Bravo, Peter. Peter comes up and he gives one of the most eloquent statements defending Paul and Barnabas that you can even imagine. I mean, he stands up and in verse 7, he says, you guys all know this. And he recounts a brief history lesson telling them that God had fully received the Gentiles without them being circumcised, without them coming under the law of Moses. In verses 8 and 9, he said this, God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. If God in heaven poured out his Holy Spirit on some uncircumcised Gentiles, isn't that God's stamp of approval upon them? What more do they have to do to to be right with God? God has already accepted them. If these Gentiles had been received as full partners within his work, then why shouldn't the church receive them? Honestly, friends, if God received somebody, why don't you receive them? That should be our measure, right? Brother, sister, if God accepts you, I accept you. That's all that matters. If the heart is made right by faith. Matter of fact, I love that phrase he uses in verse 9, isn't it? Purifying their hearts by faith. That's how the heart is purified, by faith, not by keeping the law. And if they were purified by faith, there was no need for them to be more purified or extra purified or super duper purified by keeping the law of Moses, right? I mean, there it is. The Gentile sits down to eat that ham sandwich, right? And his Jewish brother, who's also a Christian, maybe from a pharisaical background, he's thinking in his mind, you know what? You'd be more right with God if you didn't bite into that ham sandwich. (laughs) You would be more purified. And you know what the the Gentile says? He says, my Jewish brother, you're, you're my friend. You're my brother. We both believe in Jesus Christ. If you wish to abstain from the pork, fine. God bless you. Your own conscience tells you that before God. But as for me, I'm going to enjoy this delicious ham sandwich and know that my heart is purified by faith, not by what I eat or don't eat. Matter of fact, he continues on in verse 10. Peter makes this dramatic statement. He says, why then do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? See, Peter's answering an objection here. The objection was something like this. Well, okay, what's the harm in putting the Gentiles under the law, right? I mean, hasn't the law all in all been a good thing for the Jewish people? And it had been, right? Well, why are you so anti-law, Peter? What's the harm in doing it? And Peter says, listen, friends, you're looking at the law under too much of a romanticized viewpoint. You see, there's something all oh, just wonderful, good, and we obey the law and we keep it. And here we are as Jewish people together, we keep the law. When the fact of the matter is, it was a yoke that they weren't able to bear. When God first gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai, Moses was receiving the tablets. God was speaking to him. What were the people of Israel doing down below? They were partying around a golden calf saying, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. That's law breaking, right? At the very beginning, when they received the law, they were breaking the law. Well, Hundreds of years later, at the close of Old Testament history, written in the book of Nehemiah, they're back from the Babylonian exile. Uh, Nehemiah is trying to keep some order. And you know what he's doing at the very end of the book of Nehemiah? He's furious with his fellow Jews because they're not keeping the law of Moses. They're intermarrying the pagan women. They're, they're not keeping the Sabbath. So much so that, well, Nehemiah is punching them out and pulling their hair. It's really sort of, you can read that for yourself. 
But friends, let me just put it to you this way. From the beginning when the law was given to the end of Old Testament history, it's a story of failure of Israel to live up to the law. If their justification before God was based upon their law-keeping, they failed miserably. And now Peter says, why do we want to put this on them? Why? Why do we want to throw the same failure we had upon them? And then he says something masterful in verse 11. Would you pay attention to it with me? He says, follow this closely. But we believe, now again, the we is we Jews, right? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. You know, it's brilliant and so gracious for Peter to put it that way. Because that's not the way that we would normally think, right? Normally, Peter, being a faithful Jew, would say, they are saved in the same manner as we. But that's not what he says, right? It's almost as if he's looking at these uh, Jewish brethren. They're, they're, They're Christians, but they come from a Jewish pharisaical background. And he's saying, listen, you guys better thank God that you're saved the same way a Gentile is. Oh, Mr. Mrs. Law Keeper, how do you do under the law? Do you keep the commandments of God so good that you can be justified by your keeping of the commandments? Really? That's all you got to do is just keep them perfectly. Well, you can do that, right? Can you keep the commandments of God perfectly for a week? Go ahead and try. Check back with me this next Sunday. A week, a day, an hour. Again, he's saying, we are saved in the same manner as they. It's a beautiful way to express it. Way to go, Peter. Very eloquent in his defense. But now look at verse 12. It says, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now listen, I think that's wonderful. These men who were so persuaded of the truth and the importance of correcting Paul and Barnabas on this, they they were so persuaded of it that they traveled all the way to Antioch to bring the message. Now what were they doing? They were sitting. They were listening. Look at it right there in verse 12. The multitude kept silent. Friends, there's something glorious there. There's something glorious when Christians will listen. When Christians will entertain the possibility... How about this? I might be wrong on that. I know I feel very strongly about it. Really, I want to put yourself in the shoes of the certain men from Judea, right? I know I feel very strongly about this. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, Peter made a lot of sense there. I better listen for a while. Hallelujah. This is the move of the Holy Spirit in the early church, is it not? When people say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I can be persuaded by the Spirit of God. I will listen to what they have to say. And going on here now, Paul and Barnabas say, look at all the things God did among the churches until they get to verse 13. And it says, and after they had become silent. Again, wow, I just say, that's like a miracle of God, isn't it? it? Really? For contentious people to be silent and listen. Well, I don't know. I, I pray, I... I imagine that there's probably some real stubborn ones among us this morning. You know, your stubbornness is a gift of God when it's channeled in the right direction, right? But the problem is sometimes you're wrong and your stubbornness becomes a curse. Well, I pray God will give you the grace to be stubborn in all the right things. But when you need to be corrected, you'll you'll be willing to be corrected. 
Anyway, verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. He was quoting from Amos right there. Known to God from all eternity are his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those uh, from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And that concludes James's statement. First Peter spoke, then Paul and Barnabas, and then James. And in a sense, that settled it. It settled it. After they had become silent, James answered and he said, Hey, everybody, listen to me. By the way, that shows the great authority that James had. James, again, this is not James the apostle who had already been martyred in previous chapters. This is James the half-brother of Jesus. This is James who wrote the book of James. This is James who seems to have been basically the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And other people are deferring to his authority because it's the Jerusalem council. And there they are gathered there deferring to his authority. And James stands up and says, okay, guys, listen to me. Men and brethren, listen to me. And I love what he says in verse 14. God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people. Hey, everybody. God has a people among the Gentiles. You and I, we gave up on them. But God has a people among them. And these men, like Paul and Barnabas, they're doing the job of reaching out to him. But then James did something in verse 15 that's really remarkable and had yet to be done, but was very important here at this Jerusalem council. He opened up the word of God, right? He said, let's remember what the scriptures say. And he quoted this passage from the prophet Amos that said that Gentiles would come unto the Lord, that Gentiles would receive him, as it says there, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who are called by my name. He said, friends, that's the key. God is calling Gentiles by his name and salvation will come to the Gentiles. Let's not get in the way of it. So he concludes it all in verse 19 and he says, therefore, I judge. By the way, the wording in the original Greek is very strong there. James is basically deciding, understanding the tone and the tenor. Everybody could read it on their faces. We're all in agreement here. Therefore, I judge. This is how it's going to be. Verse 19, we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. If you're a Gentile and you want to turn to the Lord, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to put yourself under the ceremonies and rituals of Israel. You can put your faith right in Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, first of all, we notice one thing. In verse 20, James recommended that they write a letter to these different congregations telling them to abstain from things polluted from idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. 
What's that all about? Stay tuned for next week when we continue. Well, really, I don't have time to get into it. We'll talk about this letter next week. Seriously. I just, I find it very interesting. Whether or not you do, well, we'll find out. But I, I find it fascinating, and we're going to get to that. So just forget about that for now. That's for next Sunday. But the bottom line was this. James recognized, Peter recognized, Paul and Barnabas recognized that people were turning to Jesus, and the apostles wisely decided that they should not get in the way. Don't get in the way. God's turning people unto himself. Don't get in the way. Don't put requirements upon them other than turning to Jesus and putting their faith in them. Repent and believe. No other requirement. Repent and believe and you have to attend our church. No, that's not written in there. (laughs) Repent and believe and you have to keep this custom. No. Repent and believe Put your faith on Jesus Christ who died on a cross to pay the penalty that your sin and my sin deserved. This came home to me in a very unexpectedly practical application. When I met a man, his name is Stephen Apple. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Tel Aviv. Wonderful man. Stephen and his wife, Pat, do an amazing work there in Tel Aviv. And he told me a story about an Ethiopian man he knew. He was a security guard in this building where lots of Christians met for different groups. And the man was a Christian. He was part of a Messianic congregation. A Messianic congregation is a congregation of people who are the Christians. They love Jesus, but yet they still appreciate many of the Jewish customs and rituals and such like that. Well, this man was a member of this uh, Messianic congregation. And one day, Stephen noticed that he was really uncomfortable, that he just seemed to be in a lot of pain. Just You know, you could just tell the guy was hurting. Stephen asked him, hey, what's the problem? He said, man, I'm really in pain. A couple days ago, I got circumcised. And Stephen said, what? Well, what? Pardon me for asking, but why did you get circumcised? He thought maybe there was some medical necessity or something like that. The guy said, I got circumcised because my pastor told me that I needed to get circumcised. Now, friends, that's a very extreme example, right? But in a hundred lesser ways, we bring people under the law of Moses or the law of churchianity or the law of something else, rather than impressing upon them again and again, repent and believe, repent and believe. You can turn to God and I won't get in the way. That's what you need to hear and I need to hear, this message of grace, grace again and again. But let me point out one other thing, and I'll conclude with this. They came to this wonderful decision, but as they did it, they showed tremendous graciousness. You know, there's some people who have all the right facts about the grace of God in their life, but they're not very gracious people. You know, they're just mean. They're not loving. They're not nice. No, no, no. These people, they had grace and the right understanding of it, but they also had graciousness. And did you see the graciousness here? Okay, here's the graciousness. These certain men from Judea, these men who caused all the trouble, these men who threw the, threw the church into a tizzy and required a church council be called, who were they? What were their names? Are you going to tell me they didn't have names? Are you going to tell me that Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James didn't know who they were? Oh, I think they very well knew who they were. But because those men had soft enough hearts before the Lord that they could be persuaded to the truth, 
Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, there's no reason to record their names in God's eternal word. We'll leave it out. Let's just call them certain men from Judea. Now, when you get to heaven, you can try to find out who they were. But isn't that a great credit to them? That these men weren't so stubborn that they could have their hearts changed, that they could understand, they could come into a real understanding of that. And I think that as a display of graciousness, Paul, when he's telling Luke all about this, Peter, when he's telling Luke all about this, he goes, there's no need to write their names down. These men, these men weren't so stubborn, they could be persuaded. And even though they were Pharisees, even though they frankly caused us a lot of trouble, they were soft enough to have their stubborn hearts changed. There's no reason to include their name. Don't you want God to cover your sins that way? Shouldn't you treat other people with that kind of graciousness? So, friends, I want you to know today, yes, live and walk and receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your only hope for being made right with God. But that grace should be making you a gracious person. It should be making you more generous with other people, more loving, more forgiving, more caring for those around you. If grace isn't having the work of making you gracious towards others, there's a short circuit in the system. Let's see if we can't repair that short circuit right now as we pray.